recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive in scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 338 is recorded live August 10th, 2017. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Now, if we can keep the lightning bolts from that thunderstorm behind me uh, away from my, my power supply, we'll be pretty good. Yeah, it, w- it was doing a little bit of rumbling. We had the one of our dogs was a little bit bent out of shape about that storm coming. And it seems like we've had a fairly dry summer. And in tradition of what we had last year, as soon as Fairway started, we had a big uh, storm. And it kind of flooded everything out. So I'm hoping it's not a repeat this year because it needs to be dry. And a heads up, if I get this out before fair, uh, we will not be recording the week. Let's see, what date would that be? That would be August 17th. 17th, we will not have a recorded episode. But we'll be returning August 24th. And I think we're going to use for the chat room Discord. So if you're uh, an early adopter of technology and things, uh, take a look. It's Discord, D-I-S-C-O-R-D, and we'll be using that. That'll be text, and then I'll have to find another avenue for streaming uh, the audio. So what would happen is you would use Discord to participate in the text, and there'll be a channel it will say live, and it'll just be constantly there whether we're online or not. Uh, and we'll, we'll do stuff through... Uh, I have to figure out some way of notifying everybody. I might do MailChimp, so keep an eye out. Maybe I'll have a MailChimp mailing list uh, to get show updates. And uh, we're we're thinking about doing some sort of probably streaming. Uh, it might be YouTube streaming, so keep an eye. So it might be uh, YouTube streaming for the audio, and we might do some video. I'm not sure what I'm going to do in the video. Maybe I'll do some screenshots of the articles, and that's what will be up when we're streaming. But it's about time that we ditch the talk shoe as, as good as it's been. We've got another service that I've got all the podcasts moved over to. It's just a matter of renumbering them, which maybe I might week off next week when I'm not cooking corn dogs. I'll be renumbering episodes. So we do so have you're going to continue to be corny somewhere else? Yep, corny. Yep. They, I, they, they put me in the back. So there's a couple layer, there's like a couple screened windows between me and the, in the humans, so it won't be too bad. And uh, I'll be uh, practicing. Light in my, I noticed. Yes? I was going to say, I noticed uh, we had some comments on our show last week about the delays between the interruptions. <laughs> I don't think people realized you had lost power, or did you get those comments? Oh, I, I saw those, yeah. I, I, I responded uh, to a couple of them, but uh, maybe I missed a few. But what happened last week is that we had a, it was a short power outage, uh, kind of like this week. We had a l- little bit of a storm. It wasn't anything really terrible. Um, and we only lost power for about two seconds, but that's enough to cause everything in the area to reboot. So, 
you know, the power comes back on. You got to get the routers back up. I had to reboot the computers, sync everything, get everybody all connected. And then we just could not get TalkShoe. By that time, TalkShoe has a 15-minute timeout. Once it loses connection of a host, it boots you off. So if you're not there in 15 minutes, then you're kind of AOL. So we just had to let it go, and we finished up. So I've got to edit that one. That's a little bit more of a challenge. That will be... I've been running about a week behind. I, I posted two weeks ago yesterday. I'll post uh, probably last week's tonight, and I'm hoping that before the end of the weekend I've got this week's posted. So within a week's time we'll get three episodes. And then we come back, we'll be back on live, so hopefully I'll be able to edit and record, and it'll be up. If we do YouTube, it could be up instantly because we'll be doing uh, like a live the tape which is really the way to do it. And then the other part I have to do is I have to come up with, the, if I'm doing YouTube streaming and we have any music, i got to stream it in during the show. And then I have to make sure that it's I've got rights that YouTube agrees with. YouTube doesn't agree that just because you've got uh, uh, clearance from the author, unless they can verify it in a way that they're happy with, uh, They'll just deny you and, and shut you off. So that's a little bit of a challenge. Because even though this was uh, Creative Commons share-like type music, uh, they don't recognize it unless... You, you almost have to do is you almost have to be a professional recording artist and then do some behind-the-scenes thing where you make it free through Google, and then it's okay. But uh, or, or you record everything yourself... I don't know how they, it's like if it's in any database of ever being legitimate music, it, it seems like they just don't like you to use it. All the fun things, all the behind the stuff things that you have to worry about. Well, I'm glad you understand all of it because I, I know some of the words, but how you put those words together, I have not a clue. So uh, <laughs> you just tell me what to do and I'll just <laughs> I'll follow along. Okay, well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article we have up is that they're saying divers find no adult invasive mussels in Montana Reservoir. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services scuba divers search for three days but not find any indication of adult aquatic invasive mussels in the face of Tiber Dam in north-central Montana. The divers were brought in this week because juvenile mussels was found in the water sample taken in the reservoir near Chester, Chester last fall. That suspected sample taken from Canyon Ferry Re Reservoir near Townsend led Montana to increase its efforts to prevent the possible spread of the shellfish which, as we know, here in the Great Lakes can clog a whole lot of stuff, including uh, pipes and in water intakes. In the Montana PBS reports, Wildlife Officer Deb Gobe found a rusty pipe under the water in a Tiber Reservoir that was free of mussels, which she took to be a good sign. State officials will continue to test water, educate boaters, inspect boats at the two reservoirs, as well as watercraft coming states. So it sounds like they're they're done. They think it's good. Well, they've dodged the bullet right now, but at least when they find them next year, they'll know and have a good baseline when they started. Yeah, because yeah, I don't think, I I can't believe without any uh, aggressive action that they've actually stopped it. Either that or the water was so clean they starved. That's true. Nothing to eat. That would do it, but I'm not sure that that's really what did it. 
And then, in, well, well, like I said, it'll be interesting to see what they do next year. Yeah. Oh, and I, I apologize without Kevin here. I didn't uh, get stuff into the chat room, so let me paste it in there. Uh, next one is divers help clean Cave Run Lake. Scuba divers will splash in the Cave Run Lake to help clean up artificial reefs, 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 while also collecting data for the Kentucky fish and wildlife. Our hope is to gather volunteers this weekend to clean up event and turn it into an annual event, one that celebrates the awareness of Kentucky outdoors and fosters cleanup efforts around the state, said Michael Wallace, the event organizer. The effort will be from August 12th through 13th. Divers will be shuttled around dive locations by boats powered by the KYFW, Kentucky Fish and Wildlife. Licensed drivers should show up anytime between 7 a.m. and 10 a.m. at Scott's Creek Marina. That's divers, not drivers. Uh, Wallace said the idea started from a conversation about doing some volunteer cleanup around the lake after its heavy usage from visitors throughout the summer. He and fellow diver Kendall Barney began discussions about doing a small sail cleanup along the shorelines. They contacted KYFW staff to see where they're interested in having data from the artificial reefs they've been planning around the lake recently. This eventually led to combining the cleanup and data collection along the reefs. The cleanup and data collection will be performed at this event are key to the health of the area. The event is made up of benefit anyone who uses Cave Run for recreation, anglers, boaters, and visitors alike. While also the first mission is to dive and collect data about those reefs. The second is to clean up along the shorelines both in the water and on the ground. Both of these activities are key to improving Cave Run overall. We all use it, so it's us to give back. Uh, those who are diving must have uh, a PADI certification, and I don't know if it requires PADI or if they'll accept now your SSI. Those who are volunteering for the cleanup will not be diving. Oh, so it's two different. They're going to have scuba divers in the water. They're going to have cleanup people on the shore. Seems, yeah, okay. I guess if you can get away with it, I would think that well, uh, if you're finding stuff on the shore, you've you've got to me- expect to mirror that in the water. Yeah, and I'm quite sure they don't mean to be exclusive on that. I think they just want certification. Yeah, I, I'm putting marking this one up to the uh, authors who wrote the article that they uh, didn't understand that there are different types of there are different agencies all offering compatible or comparable certifications. Interesting choice of word, though. Compatible or comparable? Yeah. Or combatant? Would that be? Only on chat rooms. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it's anonymous, people will say all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And then the next article we have is Lookout Lake Michigan Shipwrecks in Two Rivers Gets Historic Status. The Lookout Shipwreck has been listed in National uh, Register of Historic Places. Wisconsin Historical Society announced today. National Register designation provides access to certain benefits, including qualification for grants and for rehabilitation income tax credits. Wisconsin Historical Society said the lookout is a rare example of vessel type that was vital to Wisconsin's economy, the economy of Midwest and transportation infrastructure prior to development of roads and rail networks. 
The schooner lookout was conducted in 1855, was used in the Great Lakes coal, lumber, and grain trades, and lost in 1897. 19th century wooden vessels were rarely built to draw drawn plans. Today, little documentation exists to illustrate how these vessels were constructed and nuances of different hull lines, construction techniques, and adapt- adaptations of bulk cargo needs between sailing vessel types. One of the few remaining pre-Civil War built schooners Wisconsin Water data gathered on lookout has significantly added to the understanding of Great Lakes schooner construction historical society set. Most of the lockouts, the lookouts, hull components are present when the wreck site and the site remains in excellent archaeological integrity. Historical society said sites such as lookout present a rare opportunity to study and learn about the historic wooden vessel constructions, the way these ships were used in grain, coal, and lumber trades. The vessel's wreck site was forgotten over a brief salvage in 1897 and covered by sand in Lake Michigan, only recently uncovered in the sand in the summer of 2015. It remains lightly visited. Before rail lines were constructed, vessels like the lookout moved the vast majority of Midwest corn grain to ports in Lake Erie. On its return trip, the lookout mainly carried coal cargo that supplied upper Midwest with fuel for heating and industry. The trade fueled expansion of the Great Belt. The grain belt, the construction of large elevators on West Lake Michigan, some of which are still in operation today. To register as an official national list of historic properties America deemed worthy of preserving and maintained by National Park Service on U.S. Department of the Interior, Wisconsin Historical Society administers the program within Wisconsin and includes sites, buildings, structures, objects, and districts that are significant in national, state, and local history, architecture, archaeology, engineering, or culture. State and federal laws protect the shipwreck. Divers may not remove artifact structure while visiting the shipwreck site, removing, defacing, or deplacing, or destroying artifacts or sites is a crime. So what happens when it just rots into nothing? Is it still protected then? Probably. <laughs> Nobody knows where that is protected, too. Uh, the picture they have is pretty good. I was wondering what the visibility, and do you know the depth of that wreck? No, I, I don't know anything about it. Um, so it was salvaged in 1897. I wonder when it was lost. Let's see if we can find that in the great book of everything. I was curious. It said uh, only recently uncovered from the sand, but that picture is... Uh, not indicative of having been covered with sand. No, I'm. There may have been port more or less of it covered because, like, if you look at the bottom section, like it looks like there's a line there in that main beam. It looks like they've somebody's run a, a line. And I is that a line or a pipe? Well, there's a there's something down below. That's what I was getting at. If that was a yeah. a beam of the ship, I could say that might have been recently uncovered. I'm I'm guessing by the algae growth on that, that's got to be fairly shallow, wouldn't you say? I'm well, thinking to look pretty look pretty good, and shallow is probably correct. How to reach a shipwreck? No, that's not it. Okay, I found a website that actually does have it. Wisconsin shipwrecks. Uh, when they name a ship something common like Lookout, they weren't planning on the internet in the mid 1800s. And they named it because you can't find anything with that name. Well, she was wrecked April 29, 1897. 
You said 18 what year? 97 at the Gooner Lookout ashore and abandoned on Two Rivers Point. That would also explain why the sand was encroached and now it went away. And I'm looking at a picture of it onto the side and it's like in the shallows. Okay. Yeah, so they, they tried to salvage it right away. And my guess, without knowing it as I watch the little hourglass spinning on as the page loads, is that the uh, the reason it it sank is it was just old. Well, yeah, well, that's, it looks like it's beach access. It says the schooner overlook is accessed from the Park Loop Road in Arcadia National Park just before Sand Beach. So sounds like it's a shore dive, which would be nice. Yeah, because that looked pretty good visibility for something in the shallows. And then there's this next article out of uh, Danville. They're on the hunt for something in the bottom of an old shale pit that they say continues to elude reefs uh, searchers. For about three hours on Tuesday, four divers in the Midwest Scuba Center in Urbana search for a crane which may be buried at the bottom of a pond in Vermilion Heights. The pond whose depth ranges from 60 to 35 feet is bigger than the divers expected and visibility is poor. The divers did a metal did find a metal spike sticking up out of the ground, but no crane. There's some degree of disappointment. There's a desire to keep looking, said Ken Mills, one of the organizers that the search was suspended. It's an old mystery, and it's not going to give up that easily. Mill and others, especially Bob Hagerman of Normal and Dan Hagerman of Catland, have been wanting to solve the mystery for a couple of years. The Hagmans grew up near Vermilion Hills. I'd always heard about the steam crane in, used in the Danville Brick Company being left behind when the company closed around 1929. The crane was so big it took five men to operate it. We did a swim and fish in the shale pit pond and saw the bottom of the crane back then. Oh, and saw the boom of the crane back then. It may have been too expensive to get the crane out of the pit, or maybe the pit flooded and the owners couldn't get it out. The shell pits is on property owned by nearby Owens Excavating and Trucking on Avenue C in the southeast corner of Vermilion Heights. Sue Owens' former owner with her husband Danny said she has friends who said they used to swim in the pond and jump off the boom. We've heard about it, but I never saw it, she said. Several people brought out chairs and sat along the bank, watching as four divers took a boat guided by Darren Owens, owner of the company, out in an area where the crane was supposed to be. Alex uh, Gentner, owner of Midwest Scuba Center, led the divers, including Rick Malist, Josh Buchanan, and Josh Jason Uri. They plan to take the underwater pictures. It's going to be really cool, diver Milas said in the early day. I hope we find it. The crane, If the crane was found, it would be left there. The point of the search is simply to put an end to the mystery. Everybody wants to know. We need to get proof and nail it down. Mill said the divers found one area. Their compass went crazy, indicating a large metal object. However, visibility was two to three feet, and they didn't see anything. Possibly went right past it, he said. What searchers really need is sonar, Mill said, and Gentner plans to contact the Vermilion County Search and Rescue Team, see if he wants to use sonar or training in the pond. Having a taste for mystery, Mill's plans to pursue another one, locating the grave of a circus elephant that went wild and had to be killed around... 1910, it's apparently buried in Lyons Railroad Yard. Boy, that, that went off the rails pretty quickly, looking for a crane and then talking about an elephant. 
Well, we know how that goes. Every every lake has some sort of mystery of what's in it. It's sort of shallow. Same like if they took two boats, put anchors on both, and a line across 30 feet, drag the bottom, you'd snag it. Well, and then you could do it with an inexpensive fish finder. I would do just a little bit of mowing the lawn. I doubt it's going to be a huge, you know, 100-acre lake. It's hard to tell in this picture. They got that that uh, pontoon boat loaded down pretty go- pretty well, though, don't they? <laughs> it's a little, yeah, I wonder how many people were on it or how much gear they had on it. I- I'm guessing, because uh, there's somebody in the water, so that's not at its fully loaded state. And he is a little bit out front, but that's not normally how they ride that way. And that almost looks like a trolling motor on that. That does not look like I'm outboard, does it? No, but that's the. I think that's the boat that the uh, the pit owner has. So I'm guessing it's probably you know one of those that floats in the lake, you know, nine ten months out of the year. So it may uh, be a little bit waterlogged. Looking yeah. like a nice day for a dive, though. Oh yeah, quite a great excuse. But I agree with you. I was thinking the same thing as if it's at all off the bottom. Just drag a, a couple lines between a boat. I mean, you could have this pontoon, and then you could even have somebody in a kayak or something else just holding the other end. And when it's snagged, that's what you're going to go diving on. Oh, come on, waiting. I was going to say, everything got quiet for a moment. I had to say something. Yeah, that's... Now, what this is, and the reason I brought it up is I just wanted to get some people's opinion. There's an 1800 shipwreck that has been reclaimed and repurposed. Uh, the local NBC station recorded the discovery last year from the 1800s in the Seaport District. John Dickey quietly worked with a deal with developer Sanaska, now owns the bulk of the wood, which is stored as wood, his workshop. Reclaimed wood always has character. Stuff that's been floating in the ocean for hundreds of years tends to have a lot more. He's turned it into one-of-a-kind handmade nautical art and furniture. Most of it's for sale and is a Timber Guy brand. But he also wants to make sure this is an improvement in New England story is saved since there are so many unanswered questions. Everybody asks, what's the name of the ship? Joe Bagley is a city Boston archaeologist. We exclusive look at some of those artifacts aboard the ship, like a dining set that helped Bagley piece together the clues the ship was one of many many ships that came from rockland maine down to boston all these years buried in the mud dickie said wood is finally being restored and be giving a new set of sea legs preserving the past and keeping the tabletop conversations going in the future most of the piece will be displayed for sale on friday august 11th in district hall in boston from 8 a.m to 9 p.m So it's not clear. It's like we're, we're coming in halfway on this. Uh, I wonder, was this one of the wrecks that they actually found when they were working in Boston in the shore? So they probably had to remove the wreck anyway to be able to put the proper I'm, pilings down. I'm not sure if it was uh, on shore or not. One of the pictures, I did a little surfing here, shipwreck from the 1800s discovered. Uh, I'm looking at a freaking nice ship. Uh, you're talking, it's got the mast still standing. Uh, one of the masts is laying across it. 
You've got your nice bow spirit still up there. Your chain hauls are up. Anchors on the side. Is and it in the water? That's associated. Yeah, under the water. <laughs> wow. That's one picture, and then they've got other pictures of it on dry land and pieces of wood sticking out of the dirt. So I'm not sure which one of these pictures is supposed to be where this gentleman is getting up material. I sent you two links, mm-hmm. and basically what he's doing is making shipwreck furniture out of it like they did the Frank W. Wheeler, which is local. Yeah, I'm taking a look at the uh, – oh, crap, I got the wrong one. Oh, I see. You pasted a different window. Ah, it's interesting how Skype does that. Well, the the other picture I have is the construction site with iron girders girders into the ground, and then you can see around the girders what appears to be a boat. Okay. If you're taking that kind of stuff, I can understand it. Uh, I that picture of a really nice looking boat. Ain't gonna happen. Yeah, you would have people all over screaming on that one. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's the one in Lake Ontario. Yeah, so that's a different one. Cool. I'll see if this comes up. Well, it's it's interesting. Whenever you can see the the pilings, and then around the pilings, you can see the outline of of a hull. Mm-hmm. I tried to send you another link, so I'm not sure if you got. Let me see. I got track where Skype puts these darn links. Okay. Yep. I see that one. Yeah, that's the one I think um, I'm thinking of. We covered that one because they they were they were driving the pylons and doing some excavating, and then they came across it. So this is part of Boston. Uh, when they expand, if you look at maps of Boston as it's expanded, uh, they've really recovered a lot of land from the sea. So I can. Yeah, I got no problem with. I mean, taking stuff from that one, you, you've got to. You can't hold up construction for that in the middle of the town. Well, and then it's not like they're going to leave it there. I mean, they just you leave it in place and cast it in concrete. So. But neat, I, I like it, and putting it to good use. Yep, I, mean, I like your next. You said you like the next one. Yeah, I was going to say I like the next one a lot more though. <laughs> Always do like the submarines. Yeah, so submarines. This is from Popular Mechanics, and the title is "Preposterous World of Human-Powered Submarine Racing." I just handed him the biggest hammer we have and a crowbar, the University of Washington engineering student tells me, and as he peers down into the dark, deep water basin, he's going to go down there and try to hammer the fins straight. So, so it goes at the 2017 International Submarine Races, which I think I probably used the same joke last time. Isn't that what you convince your date to go and watch, is the submarine races? Uh where, sure ridic- where ridiculous on-the-fly DIY repairs are in the name of the game. Where at Carter Rock Naval Warfare Center, a Navy complex along Potomac River in Maryland with some of the largest pools in the world, every other year in June this place transformed the major testing facility for naval vessels into a tailgate full of college 
engineers frantically trying to fix the most recent damage to their home-built human-powered submarines. The toolboxes are open, support divers in the pool, and the team from around the world are racing pedal-powered subs, more for the mechanical hell of it than any other reason. It's a true engineering challenge. A human-powered submarine is so ridiculous and impractical that outside of the competition, they are virtually non-existent. You'd be hard-pressed to find a vehicle in the present more difficulties. It's exactly in it's this impracticability, however, that makes competition such a magnet for engineers who love a good puzzle. The ISR is a race to be sure. You have to want to hit a faster top speed than anyone else, and the job of subpilot pedaling while submerged underwater is physically demanding. Many are cyclists. All are physically fit. A lot of them are people on smaller side because the subs are so tight to squeeze into. The real focus of the race is engineering. A well-designed sub will take Tim's teams much farther and faster than an athletic pilot. Here's what they have to accomplish. The occupants must take their self-powered sub down to the water basin in Calderock. The goal is to get sub lined up, stable in the long pool, and gradually build up speed until it passes through the speed trap, where a camera measures velocity in knots. If you're Sub hits the wall, the narrow pool, or the floor, or breaches the surface. The run is a scratch. They go about five knots in a good one. The world record speed for a human-powered submarine is just over eight knots, or 9.2 miles per hour, achieved in a two-person sub built by, uh, uh, I was going to say, a Montreal team. Uh, that might not sound fast, but considering top speed of Michael Phelps can swim is about six miles per hour, or five and a half knots, the boats are moving at a pretty good clip. Just crossing the finish line is an achievement. Over the course of an entire week of racing, less than half of the runs were successful. The deep water basin in Calder Rock is one of the longest pools in the world, stretching 1,886 feet long and 22 feet deep. It's part of the David Taylor Model Basin, a large complex that runs more than half a mile through Calder Rock, housing shallow water basin and high-speed basin, in addition to deep water basin where the subs race. Navy use these massive pools to drag warships and warship parts through the water and hydrodynamic tests, and they let college kids race human-powered submarines there, too. The vessels, if we want to visualize them, are not watertight, so a team of divers takes pilots down, supply them with all the air, while the pilots squeeze in the sub and tap the scuba regulators, connecting to an air tank mounted in the boat, breathing through the regulators, the pilots clip the bicycle pedals, take the steering controls, proceed to pedal their asses off. When the sub crashes, plummets to the bottom, Navy divers following in a dinghy jump to retrieve the subs, pilots, and all. And of all the things always breaking, it's unavoidable something is going to break, something is going to snap off, says Charlotte George, a naval architect of Calderac who completed the ISR in 2009 as undergraduate at the Florida Atlantic University. You just have to scramble and find a solution and hope you brought a spare part. The Navy welcomes the competition. In fact, Calderock has multiple Navy engineers who participated in ISR as college students. I came here, learned about hydrodynamics, and thought, I could do this, says George of her experience in racing the ISR. Human-powered subs offer a unique puzzle, and the skills to solve the puzzle are directly applicable to Navy Research Center where the race occurs. A complex game, example, real-world application, all rolled up in the one international race is really the most valuable part for young engineers. Racing subs, the subs are built from a variety of materials, from primarily plastics, carbon fiber, other composites, with a few metal components and some weights 
two bows to vessel. The University of Washington partnered with the Northwest School of Wooden Boat Building to build a wooden sub, the Naughty Dog. Steering these things isn't easy. Teams generally build vertical and horizontal stabilizers on the back of their subs with flaps to let the pilots control pitch and yaw. The flaps can be controlled with pneumatics or hydraulic system and some sort of joystick and hand control in the sub. But herein lies the beauty of competition. The engineers can do whatever they want. Most of the subs are on a propeller that the pilot spins by pedaling a bike crank. This is the fastest option. In many ways, the most straightforward. There is an ISR category for both one-person and two-person propeller-driven subs. Adding another person's sub and integrating their pedal system adds a new challenge to the vessel's design. Then there are non-propeller-driven subs. This category where things get interesting. Delft University Technology of the Netherlands was one of the powerhouses at ISR every year and was running a WASUB-7, the small single pilot sub with a carbon fiber wing that flaps in unison to the rear of the sub. The team of high schoolers from New Jersey had an ice cream cone submarine called Yumpty Squatch 8. It was the most popular sub at Calderock with regular cheers going for the great shining cone rotating white ice cream that sucks in water in the front and ejects it out the sides towards the rear to propel the vessel. An impeller water jet for high school kids to ride down the warship pool at Calderock. Propulsion. Though the most important part is just beginning, teams use a variety of mechanical, pneumatic, hydraulic, and even electrical systems to control their subs. Electronics are tricky underwater. As you might imagine, they can give the team enhanced precision. Virginia Tech was running with electronic actuated steering, but they probably spent more time tinkering with the system than piloting the sub. In fact, all the teams spent more time wrenching than running. Only one sub can run the course at a time, so you have to take the sub out of the water, make a repair, lose your spot in line till you get back in the queue. While it's a race, the real competition for the engineers is against the subs themselves. Finding a way to make these tubes of plastic to just go where the pilot wants, they don't have to be your own team sub. Either a snap in the pneumatic tube that forces a team to route the entire system could have engineers from a half dozen schools spitballing ideas. Above all else, ISR is about overcoming engineer complications as they arise. And it goes on. This is quite a uh, detailed article. They got some pretty cool photos in there as well. So you'll want to check yeah, it out. It was interesting. I sort of looked around a little bit at it also. As an update, Speed Awards, and like they mentioned, they were either one or two person boats, propeller, non propeller. And uh, um, they had high school and college teams. The absolute winner of the speed was uh, the ISR 14 with a speed of 5.77 blistering knots. And uh, under the um, one-person propeller in the college, uh, they made 4.9 knots. One-person propeller high school, he was 5.77 knots. Uh, his, the name of his boat was a Sublime, and that was Hernando Country Schools. One person, Propella Independent, was 1.24 knots, and it was called the Rubber Ducky. And that was done by kids, and it, the title was Kids Discovering Science. Sounds like they had a blast, though. It looks like fun. And it's one of those things where it's, it's even though you may not break the record, you just think of, you always have in your mind what is the best way to do it. I think anybody who designs or builds things in any capacity always thinks that they've got a they've got the solution or a solution. And sometimes you just need to get that solution out. You make it do something. I know artists have that feeling. 
that ice cream cone though one that does look cool doesn't it <laughs> yeah you know, I think you're going to appreciate that a lot more than a lot of people because you do something similar when you work with the robotics team at the high school. Oh, yes. Yeah, exactly. This is a, a direct uh, relation to it. In fact, there are competitions for underwater robots and all sorts of things like that. Uh, if we had if we had a year that was, you know, 30 months long, we probably could do that, but. As, as I think we talked about last week, it seems like there, we have more robotic season on than off. But cool. And, 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 it, and you look at it, you, you might wonder, why is the Navy doing this? How many people were they able to recruit because they went and came into this? You know, a lot of times you don't know. We, we, we place so much pressure on kids to know what they want to be when they grow up that it really comes down to, you got to try a few different things to know what you want. And this could, you could just find something that you're good at. Then it might not necessarily be hydrodynamics. It might be the propulsion system. It might be the steering. It might be fiberglass. You know, you, you never know. You just have to get your hands in and, and try it out. Well, this next article is we have, whoops, I, I missed an I missed an episode here. You're talking um, about the airplanes? Yeah, six airplane wrecks you can explore while scuba diving. Let me go and and pull that one up. I'm not sure. I'm not so much sure. I like this trying to navigate on the tablet because the tablet feels like it's it's completely incapable of remembering anything. So I'm going to call this experiment a fail. As people watch me playing on a tablet. So this is from Flying Magazine, not normally flyingmag.com. Not my first source of diving news, but they're saying, hey, if you're into airplanes, here are six airplane wrecks you can explore while scuba diving. And the first one is the Bristol Bowfighter out of Malta. On March 17th, 1943, Sergeant Donald Fraze and Sergeant Sandry of the Royal Air Force took off in the Bristol Bowfighter with eight other bowfighters and nine bowfighters on a shipping strike of Port Stello during World War II. According to the wartime diary of Frederick Gala, just 13 minutes later, the plane began to shake violently in loose speed. The culprit, engine failure. The crew ditched the ship and was brought to safety. In about 2004, the long-range fighter was seen once again lying inverted in the sandy ocean floor about a 1,000 yards off the coast of Malta. Now divers can explore the twin-engine aircraft as it lies in about 125 feet of water with its main fuselage, wings, and undercarriage still in track. Moray and conger eels can be seen at the dive site, along with coral starting to grow in the plane in its second life. And then there's the Aiki E-13A in Palau, uh, known to the Allied forces as Jake, the long-range reconnaissance seaplane, was used commonly by the Imperial Japanese Navy in the Pacific, Although it was introduced in 1941 and retired in 1945, the same decade, more than 1,400 of the seaplane were produced. 
That looks like another fun one to go see. And then they have a Vault F4U Corsair out of Hawaii. Pilot of this American fighter thought he had a faulty fuel gauge when he noticed it quickly plummeting after taking off from Pool Harbor in a routine mission in 1948. But his engine failed. He realizes there's no more dire issue. The pilot successfully landed the aircraft about three miles off the southeast coast of uh, Oa and was later rescued, but his plane was a casualty of the mistake. <laughs> so, yeah, I think they do need a little bit of petrol. And then they have the Bristol Blen- Blenheim bomber in Malta. Another warbird lying in the seafloor off Malta was crafted by the Bristol Aeroplane Company, Bristol Bleem. A light bomber used exclusively by the Royal Air Force during World War II can be found in 130 feet of water, just 875 yards off the Delmira Peninsula. And then they have the Shorts 330-200 British Virgin Islands. Uh, passenger aircraft built to carry three crew members and 30 passengers while it was produced from 74 to 92, overran in the Caribbean Sea after boarding takeoff on May 6, 1993. All the passengers in a plane, which was taking off from what was left, was then known as the Beef Island Airport in the British Virgin Islands, were unharmed, but the plane was lost cause. The aircraft measuring 75 feet from wing and 54 feet in length was stripped of its instruments, repositioned in 42 feet of water off Great Dog Island for divers to explore. And then they have the Vulcan Bomber in the Bahamas, another plane you might want to see. This was from the film Thunderball. James Bond is asked to investigate the disappearance of the Avro Vulcan high-altitude bomber and its cargo of atomic bombs. Bond finds a plane sunk in the water in the Bahamas. Film crew actually assembled the fiberglass model of the Vulcan Bomber while shooting in the Bahamas. Sinking the set piece in about 40 feet of water off New Providence Island, is believed the crew destroyed the model so others could not use it for filming, leaving the remaining metal framework may be seen today. The jungle gym-like structure is now a magnet for marine life with coral covering the metal framing. Anglefish grouper, bang tabs, and snappers make frequent visits. I think that's... Uh, All I mean, those are nice. Yeah. But I, what I was going to say, I sent you another link. You might want to take a look at it. It's called Documentary. And it's uh, of Lake Michigan. Now, you want to take a look at some aircraft that look like aircraft. Take a look at some of that stuff. And uh, we've been fortunate to have had a couple of presentations in our locale by a group of AT&T that has salvaged several dozen of these aircraft. So uh, take a look at the link I sent you. That's another one if you want to look at aircraft. Yeah, and this one is uh, since from the Chicago Tribune. We'll paste that one in the chat room so they can follow along. It's a 60-minute documentary that premieres on Chicago Public Television. explores critical but little-known role Lake Michigan played as a training ground for thousands of fighter pilots during World War II. The Heroes in Deck of World War II on Lake Michigan chronicles Navy operations launched off Chicago's shoreline that included conservation of two-passenger steamers into makeshift, oh, I said conservation conversion, of two passenger steamers and makeshift aircraft carriers trained some 15,000 aviators conduct missions in Pacific following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. In Heroes, director John Davies and production Harvey Moshman and Brian Callies reprises Davies' 18, uh, 1988 
short film Top Gun to 43 with new declassified film and stills, digital recreations and underwater recovery footage of planes that crashed during wartime training exercises. Just when you think a subject like World War II has been poured over and made stories in so many different ways, there's always something that comes up, said Callie's former Mount Greenwood resident. This is one of these stories. Then it goes on there, so that's another good one. Well, I think the nice part is you can see the difference in the deterioration or lack of saltwater versus freshwater. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's. I looked at the pictures that they showed, and it's like, well, you got a couple of nuts and bolts and some rust. The other ones look like, well, darn, those look like airplanes. Yeah, they, well, they, they look like they just went in. I mean, if, if somebody said that just, they went in last year, you could believe that. Because they do have a little bit of wear, they have a little bit of growth on them, but not a ton. One picture I'm looking at right now is a Grumman F4F Wildcat that crashed during a training exercise recovered from Lake Michigan. Yeah, I just linked that to the other guys. You can see the significant difference. Yeah, very nice. And then this next one, I, I think uh, I've, I've got some feelers out to see if we can get some of these people responsible on the show in a future date. But uh, divers descend 430 feet to reach a freighter that sank in Lake Michigan in 1929. The Senator, a 121-year-old steel freighter that sank off the coast of Port Washington in 1929, was so heavily encrusted with quagga mussels it appeared to be fuzz. Although the ship was discovered four years ago by sonar, sonar and explorer by a remotely operated underwater vessel, the perilous deepwater dive was the first time scuba divers had seen the wrecks with their own eyes. A monumental technical achievement. This was so far beyond what recreational divers experience. It's more like going to space or something, said uh, Jansen of uh, Wanakee, who made two dives to the site with fellow diver John Scholes of Farmington, Minnesota on Saturday and Sunday. The depth limit for recreational diving is typically around 130 feet. The senator sank on a foggy Halloween morning in 1929 after it collided with the Marquette, an ore carrier, and 20 miles off of Port Washington. The newly refurbished senator, along with nine passengers and about 250 brand-new Nash automobiles being transported from Milwaukee to Detroit, quickly rolled over and sank before its crew had a chance to man the lifeboats. The ship's remaining 20 passengers were saved by a passing fishing tug and the damaged Marquette, which was dragged back to port in Milwaukee. The senator's now 400-foot-long mass beached at the bottom of the lake. Jansen said the ship appeared to have been taken quite a beating. Large metal radio mast was once vertical, is now bent parallel to the boat. The previous surveys had discovered a large gash in the stern from the collision. Cars not chained inside the ship have fallen from the boat sliding into the sand according to the Wisconsin Shipwrecks website. The shipwreck was listed in National Register of Historic Places in 2016, a rare example of 19th century vessel of this type that was vital to Wisconsin's economy, the steel bulk freighter. And it goes on. But that's a, you really have to want to go and see that to do 430 feet. And a submersible. 
Well, they weren't in a submersible. They were scuba diving. I know. That's what I said. I'd like to go in a submersible. Oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, because I don't. There's not enough training and preparation. Uh, do, you, do you have to be a special type of person to want to do that? I know of some of the. Did like you see the link I sent you? Let me see here. Uh, a thousand feet down. On scuba, not rebreather. Yeah, the, yeah, these two guys were on rebreather, which just, I mean, it helped, it certainly helps you out, gives you a better dive profile and a little bit less uh, hanging time, but you still have to prepare like it's open circuit. Because if you get almost to the bottom and then you something goes bad, you have to make sure you got enough air to get you back out. Yeah, this is the one, this is a record we, well, this one's a couple years ago. I think there might even be another one since then, but a thousand feet down. Uh, this is uh, Guinness World Record for the deepest scuba diving uh, done in the Red Sea at 305 meters or 1,000 feet. When asked why he decided to dive deeper than any human person before, Ahmed Gaber, 41, told media he was hoping to prove that humans could survive the conditions of deep sea immersion, according to Guinness Book of World Record. Diving off the coast of Dahab, Egypt, Gaber reached a depth of 1,090 feet, 4 inches, 332.35 meters. Previous record holder for the deepest scuba dive, Nuno Gomez of South Africa, also dove off the coast of Dubai or Duhab in 2005, reaching a depth of 1,044 feet or 318.21 meters. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Everybody keeps pressing the limit because uh, the initial one I read was 2002, and he, he first hit. 1,000, and you can already see they're getting past it, but not by a heck of a lot. And their their downtimes are tremendous. Again, this one here was on scuba, not rebreather, which is significant when you think of the manpower and the uh, the economics of bottles and this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's freaking amazing. Well, the, these guys who did the 400 feet, it was about 15 minutes for them to get down. This world record dive, it was about 12 minutes for them to get down, but then the time they get back to the surface was 15 hours. So 12 yeah. minutes down, you want to have a, 15 hours back. You want to have back. a dry suit and be warm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I know of, of people, uh, and we probably covered in the show, um, some people who were going for some of these world records, and one of them had, uh, he hit his, his dry suit, he hit the inflator when he was in the bottom, to put a little bit of air into it, and the inflator button disintegrated, so he flooded. And he says that was the closest he had come to death, was freezing to death on the, the deco on the way back up. And this is a tropical location he was diving in, too. And that's one of the reasons these guys were diving where they were, because it was historically warmer water and less storms. So if they came back up, they weren't going to be in the middle of a gale or something. Yeah. And I bet you the water is probably clear. It makes it a little bit easier for your to have some safety divers who can be present. There was a couple of articles I was reading on it. Uh, the max depth on these thousand footers they had their safety divers was three hundred feet. Yeah. And on several attempts, they had lost their safety divers at three hundred feet. Did the, the, the safety divers went down and had problems and didn't make it? Well, they. Right. They got down to 300, and for whatever reason, you know, there was fatalities. So, I mean, world records are great, but they're they're obviously not without risk, and not just to the guy 
primarily trying to set the record, but to support people who are trying to help them. Yeah. I mean, if you're a techie, it's quite interesting to look at their, their mixes of gas they were using and the difference between the different people. But they don't go down there and say, I'm going to go diving today and make a 1,000 foot. They're talking dedicated time, efforts, and training to do this. Yeah, you you just don't, you know, wake up on a Saturday and say, hey, let's go. Let's go a 1,000 feet. I mean, you think about how many tanks of gas to do 15 hours. And then that's not your normal gas mixes. You know, they're doing all sorts of uh, blended, at least tri-mixes. And and they're going to have thousands of dollars in, in gases to do 15 hours. Probably enough helium to launch the Hindenburg. I think the one in here had a good article talking about how much helium they did use. And I think if the Hindenburg had used helium, <laughs> it would have been a little safer for it. Yeah, it might not have had as much flame. Even though when you saw what they put on the outside of the blimp, that was plenty flammable as it was. You mentioned that. I'm, I'm actually uh, reading a book now on... Uh, a British airship, lighter than airship, called the uh, 101, that was just released this week, and that's an interesting story. If you're if you're into engineering and cause and effect and disasters, you can kind of get an idea on how these projects work. That they're almost a disaster right from the beginning, and hopefully lessons learned. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's we. So that does it for the main part of Scuba in the News, but how about this for some potential cool scuba gear? We'll, pa- we'll paste this into the chat room. Not sure I'm going to rush out, go rush out and buy this, but... Uh, we can't get you to go out and get a dry suit. Come on. Could you, I am not going to look like these gentlemen. Here they've got a bunch of very skinny model men. And they're wearing a wetsuit that is designed like a tuxedo. A photographer, Wayne Lawrence, uh, did a photo in, uh, I'm thinking this is like an art piece. It's hard to tell. They seem to be form-fitting, and I bet they sweat like crazy. Yeah. What do they say? Somebody somewhere I saw that they had a price on them, thirty nine hundred dollars. I'm thinking I get some white paint. I could paint my own tuxedo lines. You see, I, I just go buy one and put it over my wetsuit. The design is part of Brown's 2017 Spring Summer line, and it's available for thirty nine hundred dollars. Those models do not look comfortable. They're on a beach. It is obviously by the photos very sunny, and they are cooking. But if you wanted to do, I mean, there's all sorts of James line, James Bond's lines you could use with this. So there you go. I think for the value, it's probably not worth it, but uh, guy does look cool. So that does it for Scuba in the News. We are now to that time of the show where we get to talk about some scuba diving.
too bad Kevin had to jump off because I know that he we could have caught up with him. He's got quite a bit of time in the water. Have you been had the chance oh. to get any diving in? I was a little dry this week. I went instead of underwater diving. I was out at uh, the Summerfest in Chicago where they had their skydiving for the last ten days. Uh huh. So I went there to do pictures and stuff, and I got some pretty good shots. So no wet work this week. But uh, there was a Thursday, Thursday dive, and I think uh, there was pictures even on the club site. We have some new divers out there I have not seen before, and they were displaying the treasures for the uh, the bottles they collected, even tonight. Excellent. Yeah, it is. Uh, I heard they're going to try and get back in the river. Uh, we've had a, a well. Yeah, we've been we've been in the river three weeks now. Is it just uh, dry enough that it's a good time of year? Because normally. Uh, with boat traffic, it can be a little bit of a challenge. Well, uh, we were out there last week, and I, I can't remember. It was yeah, it was it was a Thursday night, and uh, whenever the uh, the sheriff department went by in their boat, they gave us uh, or and I was on the surface boat. I'd just come back up. They gave us the thumbs up because every diver had a flag. Everybody was by their flag, and the boat anchored really well. Had a flag, so we got the okay from them when they went by us. <laughs> uh, so if you're out there, you really might want to t- take your flag because those guys are everywhere. Oh, yeah. Bar- Berrien County's got a pretty uh, well-populated Marine Division. You also have DNR, which is vastly understaffed in this part of the state. There's only a couple officers who even come down into the county. Uh, yeah, and there's there's one of the boats that launch out there at Miramar, and it's been the sheriff, I believe. He's got a... Uh, Oh, darn it. Jet boat. Mm-hmm. So he can get back under the bridges up to the dam oh, okay. a lot easier than you can if you got a prop job. So those guys get around pretty good, even if it's shallow. Yeah. But it's just a good practice. And I, I like seeing them out there because it kind of uh, calms things down. Because some of the fishermen uh, can get a little bit ornery. Yeah. You're actually, you're not your hassle or your, your hazard, but a lot of kayakers out there. Oh. Most of them do stay in the middle, uh, but they are gawkers. They'll look and they'll say, what is that floating out there? So I imagine kayakers. And they'll go buy it. I was going to say, I'm, I'm betting that kayakers are a little bit like bicyclists on the road. You know, where, oh, those are for cars. That's not for me. <laughs> but anyway, the, the river has been pretty decent. Um, I know Lake Michigan, uh, if you've been watching the buoy temps the other day, it was 72 at the surface and 72 at 52 feet. Wow, that's a little toasty all the way down. It was it was really weird looking. Let me not let you know. But we've had some uh, interesting winds. I mean, one day you'll have decent. I swear to God, next you know four hours later you got whitecaps out there, and yeah, they I... are dredging again. So if you're downstream, you're going to get Whoa. some ki- kickback from the from the dredging. When you say dredging, that's in the St. Joe River, uh, probably at the... At the well, the, they were at the mouth of the river uh, the other day. And if you go down there by Lions Park, you can see the big uh, pipe they're using. And they're putting the spoils back up there to build up that section. So then the wave action can carry it down. Oh, okay. So they're, they're a little bit of a strategy to reduce the dredging cost, just pile it up and let the... Waves deal with it. 
Well, it also answers the complaint people have that the, the piers block the movement of sand from the north to the south. Okay, here's some more sand, let it go. But when the winds come from the south, right. you know, in the southwest, well, now where's your complaint? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not picturing that the, uh, the pier prevents that much sand movement. What probably prevents the sand movement is that house somebody built on the cliff. That is until the erodes way underneath and it falls in. Yeah, the water goes up, the water goes down. Beach, you know, the beach line does the same thing. Yeah. Fills in and erodes. Yeah, I always like it when we go out to uh, Max Rec and you can see the, uh, there's that one house that concrete blocks weren't enough. They, they used uh, cars to shore up the hill. So you, you get glints off the glass and the chrome and the mirrors when you we drive. Yes, by and you deliberately, yeah, yep, you go there just before sunset so you get all the reflection so you know where all those car parts are. Yep. Kind of one of the highlights of, of going out there. And it'll be interesting when we see uh, one of our club members who just went to Norway, and his uh, one of his purposes was to go take a look at the Vasa. I think it's the Vasa mm-hmm. that they recovered and really haven't. I think they've had something like forty million people visit since they've had that. Now it's been there quite a few years, but yeah, that's a lot of people. Yeah, that's but the one. The, you know, yeah, that's that's a that I've seen photos of it. That would be unique to see that up close. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a lot of money to, to do what they did, but that's like a national treasure, and that's why they can do it. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there'll be some diving, and uh, when we meet again in a couple of weeks, we look forward to hearing all the stories. Uh, between now and then, we'll have a mug club meeting, and then we also have our annual picnic. That will be, uh, it sounds like it's going to be planned for Niles. Right, it's uh, the 19th. Uh, matter of fact, I sent out a survey item with the newsletter today, trying to get a response before the meeting. So when we get to the meeting, we have an idea how many steaks and chicken somebody has to buy, who's going to provide the grills, and who's going to bring extra chairs and tables. So when we get to the meeting, hopefully it'll be done. Uh, I know the club president won't be there. I'm not sure if our VP is going to be from Norway yet. So by getting this information available now, we'll be much better able to plan what we're going to be doing. Yeah, this, the sooner you can get that planned, the better. I almost turned mine in today and I because I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. But I wanted to uh, – I was trying to explore all the options to see if there's any way I could go. And the problem is I've, is I've got uh, – robotics demonstration that happens in the morning and then as soon as that ends i've got corn dogs i gotta cook until about 11 p.m so i unless i can fit it in in about 10 minutes i don't think i can make it (laughs) eat fast and run yeah but everybody else will be having a dive is is there going to be discussions of maybe doing a drift dive again yeah i put down there on the survey you know who wants to dive who wants to do a kayak dive and you could go in up the French Dam and then get back out right there where we have our uh, our food at. You don't have to go all the way back down to Maramont. I know last year the weather was such that no one dove, so I think our whole picnic was only two hours. Yeah, I do. I did make last year's. I think I was able to, to skate away for a little bit. 
Let's see. Do you have any uh, safety articles for the week? Uh, let me take a look real quick. You hum or something for a moment. Yeah, I, I could hum a, hum a story or talk about or I could thank all our supporters, our Patreon supporters. I'd like to thank Vanessa Homiak for being at the Dive Nitrox level. Thank all our other Patreon supporters. If you like the show, if it's worth at least a cup of coffee or so a month, then go on, head over to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Uh, click on the Patreon links and uh, give us a little bit of a donation. Uh, if We'd also like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air again one more year. If you like hunting, fishing, and the great outdoors, you'll love WRVO Radio. Go to our website, scroll on down to the bottom, and click on the link, and that will show you how you can listen to WRVO Radio. Well, I am back. Uh, for those who are club members, they're going to have the same item because I put it in the newsletter, and you can read it at the club site uh, as soon as I post it on the club site. But it's basically it's uh, called Scuba Emergency Response Procedures. And it's something that you usually don't think about until it's too late. But knowing the priorities and performing the correct procedure in a diving emergency requires good judgment and accurate assessment of the situation, which basically means pre-planning on your part of how would I respond to a problem, to an, you know, to an emergency. So when they talk about it, emergency procedures, they say number one is, unless it's absolutely necessary, you should avoid entering the water if you're trying to do help somebody who's in the water in distress. Like they always say, you know, try to assist the victim by extending a pole, using a float, a rope we use to throw bags. That's why we carry them around with us. You know, maybe you can wade out in a shallower part, take a small boat or craft to reach the diver. Key item is don't enter the water if it's going to be a hazard to you. Uh, they say if you choose to make the rescue, you you should be looking at and considering the chances of being successful without endangering yourself. And, and making contact with a pa- uh, you know a panic diver can be an extremely dangerous situation if the victim overpowers you. And if you've ever taken advanced swimming or a life-saving course or a lifeguard, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, they said there is rarely one single procedure to act in a diving emergency, but the initial step should be to Stop, think about the risk, then help if you can do so safely. I mean, it, it's nice, but you don't want to get yourself killed. You look at how many people drowned going to get somebody in who gets in without them, and they drown. You read about this and you hear about it in the papers all the time. And again, we're talking to responding to diver emergencies at the surface. You know, it's a little different, you know, if you're already in the water, if you're in a boat, and you already have flotation gear on. Your options are a little different than if you were trying to do something from shore. Key item in any case is take some form of flotation device with you when you go, because you may get out there and then suddenly realize, I overextended myself and I'm tired and I'm drowning. And taking a float is going to help you save yourself and the other individual. Uh, They talk about if you're working with a diver, Give clear verbal directions to encourage the diver to remove their weights. And we've talked about it in other uh, presentations that majority of people they find drowned on the bottom have their weight bags or weights still with them. Again, if they panic, they want to try to climb up on you and use your BC. 
try to get them without touching them to get rid of their own waves. Uh, let's see. There's a lot of items there. The other key item they talk about, though, is water exit with responsive divers. So if you've established ample buoyancy for yourself and the victim, you've calmed down the situation, you've got your energy restored a little bit because you're going to get an adrenaline boost. You probably choose to assist a diver back to shore the, or to the boat. And we often get asked, you know, when you're doing that, should you remove the victim's equipment? And that really depends upon factors that quite often are out of your control. You got to determine the distance you need to go. And do you have to tow the diver? Is he able to swim? Uh, did you make a decision of dropping non-essential gear that will, you know, reduce drag? Save energy. I mean, are you towing lots of lights, camera? Well, which is more important? The drag by dragging some of the heavy cameras or a tow sub that's very heavy because it somehow lost its positive buoyancy? Are you hanging on to it? Uh, surface conditions. You know, if you've got a chop, you just compounded the aspect if you're not really well buoyant, if you're tired, if you're having trouble breathing. Uh, let's see, they had the other items they talk about. Uh, considerations for exiting the water. Uh, you may be able to offer physical assistance if they're too weak. You may choose to wait a little bit of time until the divers have taken time to rest in the shallows, which is smart. But you should also be watching the diver when they're resting to make sure they don't have some latent or some actions that are going to come across and, and cause them you know, pass out. Now they're going to drown in the shallows. So you got to be careful for that. Uh, one of the other aspects they talk about is emergency response procedures once everybody is exited. And one I've talked about is if the diver is fully recovered from the incident, it was success, success for you and them, said try to be sensitive towards his self-esteem because that diver is probably going to be embarrassed all the heck about what he did or didn't do. He'll probably be frightened, and it's going to cross over when he wants to go back diving next week. Or the next day. So you don't browbeat, you know, browbeat the guy and beat him up. Let's let him get it back to normal before you maybe suggest different actions you can do to uh, help prevent such an event. So, so you but don't take you a don't, look at the article. I was going to say, you don't give him like yeah. bad nicknames like Lead, lead Bottom or. Well, dead, maybe dead later or... in jest <laughs> or something, but, you know, initially, the key item is getting him out, getting him safe, making sure he's okay. And then a lot of times you're, you're, you're going to get a nickname or something, but at least you'll be alive to have the nickname. Yeah, and that's the goal we all want is everybody to come back alive. Cause yeah. I, cause but as, again, yeah. as you were talking about that, I was thinking. You don't go out if it's going to get you drowned. No, no. But I, but I was thinking is, you know, if, I'm in my mind when you were saying the swim back, for some reason I was just picturing Gull Lake, and I know that we don't go out far in Gull Lake. But I could just imagine a, a situation where you're you're way out in the middle of of a body of water, and it was a shore dive. But you you went way out, and then you have to call, haul them back. You know, you, you talk about drag. What are the considerations for when you take that off? Because because at first, you know, if you're the rescuer, you got so much adrenaline and running, you don't want to stop to reduce the drag because you're going to try you're trying to get them in. Uh, so well, that, especially if they're not breathing. Yes. Yeah, because it, it's... You know, you're trying to get back because they're unconscious. Yes. Uh, 
So uh, to, to me, my first opportunity to go and undo that would be when I can't go anymore. You know, if I'm just so exhausted, can't get my breath, uh, that, that might be the moment where I would then take the time to remove the gear. Cause I, cause I'm thinking to myself, if I can move either of us, uh, that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and get us into shore. Like they think before you go. Yeah. And again, that's another good reason to have safety equipment. Throw bags are a wonderful device. Yeah. Well, and then and having the, the, the go gonna... float with you. The, the lifeguards take mm-hmm. never a bad thing because you can always use it to extend to the diver or the person in trouble to give them that extra buoyancy, which they really, really want. Yeah, and a safety sausage, uh, just just something that uh, lets people know that there might not be a great situation. Uh, people may not realize that you're out there, that you may need help because there's always, especially if you're on the inland lake and there are boats all over. You know, we, we've just been talking about people slaloming around dive flags and stuff uh you know it might be useful to try and flag somebody down to help you get yourself in quicker well i, I keep thinking if you're doing a drift dive either in a, in a fast current river or in the ocean especially and you get yourself tired out because you get separated from your group uh that that to me would be a very frightening situation and then if you were to lose buoyancy oh yeah got a hole in your your vest or something or you got a bad chop, uh, not a pleasant time. No. You got to keep your wits about you because I could, or I could see that being stressful, especially if you're doing one of those fast drift dives, as if the drift is going out to sea. You're, in fact, you're, when you get, you're in a current too quick to swim against, but you're also seeing land get farther and farther away. And it's a bummer when nobody knows you're out there by yourself. File that plan before you dive. See, that's not thinking ahead. Yeah. You, you can't do that after the fact. You can't be in the water and no. say, I wish I did that. As electronic well, as we are. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I mean, I seriously, if I were someplace out and I'm doing by myself, an ERB is a wonderful tool to have. Yeah. And they've got a lot of nice diver ones now. I haven't looked at the prices lately, but they they're pretty they're getting pretty reasonable. I think Kevin did a little bit of research on that, so maybe he'll talk about that next time. Because yeah. uh, when he went up north, he was very conscious of being out there in the middle of nowhere by himself, and the way the weather kicks up, he was making sure he was covered a lot of different ways. Which you don't have one backup or two; you try to have as many as you possibly can. Yeah, very good point. Well, let's see. Do you have any plugs you want to do before we put an end to this? Um, not today. Maybe next week. Yeah, and you know Kevin will be talking about librarians. Uh, you know they they're there to give you a hand, support your local libraries and and librarians. Uh, also support your local dive shops. You know, while the internet may get you a great deal on some gear. It's a little ch- bit of a challenge to get your air tanks filled uh, through your internet provider. So just remember that next time you're you're buying something online. And I believe that puts us to that time of the show. Then, all right. 
And this one, I think we've done a couple versions of this before. And again, it comes from Rod. So, uh, you know, is it, is it worse if we've done it before or, or a version? I'm not sure, but we'll give it a try. When Mr. Wilkins answered the door late in the evening, the day after he lost his wife scuba diving, he was greeted by two grim-faced policemen. We're sorry to call on you at this hour, Mr. Wilkins, but we have some information about your wife. Well, tell me, he demanded. The policeman said, we have some bad news, some pretty good news, and some really great news. Which do you want to hear first? Fearing the worst, Mr. Wilkins said, give me the bad news first. So the policeman said, I'm sorry to tell you, sir, but we found your wife's body this morning in San Francisco Bay. Oh, my God, said Mr. Wilkins, overcome with emotion. Then remembering that what the policeman had said, he asked, well, what's the good news? Well, said the policeman, when he pulled her out, she had two five-pound lobsters and a dozen good-sized Dungeness crabs on her. Huh, he said, not understanding. So what's the great news? The policeman smiled and said, we're going to pull her up again tomorrow morning. Wow. Did we lose you? I was gonna, no, I think you did for a second there, but my comment was, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah, so that one... I mean, uh, you know, if you said that on the air, you'd get all sorts of flack for that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, you would. Not being but from, these are called bad books, people. Yeah, yeah, they're, that, that one is really bad. And maybe a little bit of bad taste, so. Yeah, but the lobsters, lobsters taste good, though. <laughs> they're, they're tasty. So until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. been completed.